Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. This week, I have Jolene Fernald here to talk all about a topic I know many of you have questions about that you've asked me about and I couldn't answer. I've had colleagues ask me about it. So we're talking all about selective mutism. So Jolene, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your journey to your SLP-ness today? Absolutely. I have been an SLP for about 27 years. And when my oldest daughter was about three years old, she's almost 21 now. So however far back that was, 17 years ago, she was diagnosed with selective mutism. And the clinician that made the diagnosis was a child psychologist. And she said, you're an SLP. And so you know basically how to treat this and how to get support for her. And that blew me away. I actually had no idea what I was doing. I had very little information about SM in graduate school. And it started me on this journey of trying to figure out how to initially help my daughter. And then once we figured out a program that was supportive for her, I thought, my goodness, if I felt this way, and I was located between Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire and Boston Children's Hospital in Massachusetts, and I still couldn't find resources for how to help 
my own child, I assumed that other people were probably in similar situations. And so I started an assessment and treatment clinic for SM. It was the first multidisciplinary clinic in the United States that I'm aware of. So we had speech and language, we had a licensed clinical social worker, and we also had an occupational therapist and found that that was most successful. So that was back in 2006. Fast forward to 2022, and I have accomplished a PhD in infant and early childhood development and mental health, and I see mostly kids on my caseload with SM. Wow. And how is your daughter doing today? She's amazing. I love to brag about her. She is a teaching assistant and going to college for education to become a teacher. She sings on the worship team at church and has very little remaining characteristics of the mutism aspect. Still some underlying anxiety is definitely present, but she's doing really, really well. Amazing. What were some of the signs that made you bring her to the child psychiatrist? So we had noticed early on that she tended to be skittish around other people. She tended to kind of hide behind us whenever we were socializing with people who weren't typically in our social circle. And so with that sort of reticence that we were noticing, I just assumed she was a shy child. I just kind of said that her temperament was one, you know, that was more most described by being shy. And then when we got her into her preschool, I had a conversation with the preschool teacher who said, I think she's autistic. And that completely blew me away because I knew what she was like with us at home. So at home, she was social, outgoing, confident, and so on. And then in school, she tended to stand by the side of the room. She took everything in, observed everything that was going on, participated fully, but was unable to verbalize. And she sort of avoided eye contact. And back then, you know, in the early 2000s, that was such a, a big red flag characteristic that everybody talked about. And so when the teacher brought that up to me, I was really surprised. And then I sent a colleague in who didn't know my daughter. She was an SLP as well. And I said, could you just do an observation and just let me know what it looks like for her there. And sure enough, those were the characteristics that she was observing. Sometimes a little bit of a protective stance, some rigid body, definitely not engaging or interacting with her peers. And so I said, okay, being the the type of mom that I am, I wanted to find out what's going on here. Why is there this difference, this dichotomy between what she looks like at home and then what she was acting like in social situations? And I actually struggled to find a psychologist who would see her at the age of three. Many professionals were saying that she needed to be able to be older for cognitive behavioral interventions. And because she was only three, she really wasn't a candidate for CBT. And so I ended up through Boston Children's, a neuropsychologist who was through their children's psychology program. And she was the one who said, I believe she meets the criteria for SM. Wow. That's so fascinating. Like, didn't even know that she would be that way at school. And and so as an SLP, and when they said, hey, you can fix this. And what did you learn from that journey that you didn't know before? I think my initial discovery was that SM is not caused by trauma. So I had always thought through graduate school that it was something that impacted kids who were in the foster care system or kids who had been 
abused or neglected. And I knew that certainly wasn't the case for my daughter. So that was probably the biggest aha moment that I had, realizing and recognizing that SM is not caused by some sort of of traumatic event. And then the journey really was about trying to figure out what was the underlying cause, really what was the etiology behind SM for my daughter and perhaps for other children. I wasn't really thinking about other kids at the time. I was really focusing on my own child. And that was such a a learning discovery for me when I realized that SM is typically caused by sort of this, I call it the perfect storm of three things. So the first one is this predisposition. So there's a a family predisposition. Usually there's someone in the family who has anxiety, depression, some other mental health characteristic, diagnosed or not necessarily, but, um, but usually a predisposition. The second piece is more around the neurobiology for our kids. And so there is some literature that says that kids with SM actually have an overreactive amygdala. And for those who haven't been in neuroscience for a while, the amygdala is that part of the brain that keeps us safe, right? It's supposed to keep us safe. But what happens is if it's overreactive, it's constantly firing and telling us that we're in danger. So whether the child's in danger or it's just perceived danger, the way that the body is interpreting that information, the body is reacting as if it is actually in some sort of danger. So what happens is one of six F words is what I call them. So we have the fight, flight, and freeze that most people are familiar with. And then we have fawn, fatigue, and flood. And so that freeze happens to be that vocal freeze. But for some kids, like my daughter, who was more severe, that actually froze her whole body. So it was really hard for her to make selections, choices, even using alternative communication because it just impacted her ability to initiate. So predisposition, then the second one is that overreactive amygdala. And then the third has to do with environment. And I didn't realize as her mom that I was actually doing things to continue to maintain the mutism, that my stepping in for her and my helping to answer questions when we went to a restaurant or answer somebody who asked her, you know, what her name is or something, I didn't realize that I was actually perpetuating the mutism. I need to be really cautious to make sure that anyone who's listening, that you're not blaming parents for causing their child's mutism. But as with so many things, that if you don't know how to engage or interact with it, you may potentially make it worse. And that's essentially what I was doing as a parent and didn't realize. So those three things combined are really what make the SM happen. Any one of those may or may not kind of trigger the SM characteristics, but all three absolutely will. Wow. That's so fascinating, especially because so often, especially in the schools, when we have these cases, we say to teachers, hey, do what you can to like try to reduce the overwhelm and not say speak for them, but try to reduce that overwhelm. And is that the best advice? I think that it's really challenging because so many of our kids in the school get referred to us as SLPs. And the initial thought is, well, it's an anxiety-based disorder. So what is our role? How do we help support classrooms in helping these kids quote unquote, come out of their shell, right? Make them more confident, make them more comfortable in their school setting. And I think that the first part is to help people understand that kids are not going to just 
automatically outgrow it. So you can't just put a child into a smaller classroom and make the assumption that they're just going to start talking because there are fewer children around. Now, that's not to say that they won't. There are certainly some kids that may, but typically it is so involved, so much more involved that the smaller size is not going to make that big of a difference. As long as that amygdala is firing, as long you can't change DNA. So obviously the predisposition is going to stay the same. And then that environment stays the same. You're not going to see a change. So I usually recommend increasing a lot more physical activity. What we know about stress responses and what we know about anxiety in general is that if you are more physical, thinking about it from a sensory processing side of what that vestibular system does with how it regulates information coming into your body, how that proprioception system works within giving those you know, increased awareness to joints and muscles and kind of that safety security with deep pressure and some of those things. So, an exercise routine, for lack of a better word, really can make a big difference because if you imagine this child is literally walking a tightrope throughout their entire day of not falling into that, any one of those six F words, then our job is to try to give them some opportunities to blow off some steam. And if they can have some physical opportunities throughout the day, that actually will alleviate some of that major anxiety and some of that major fight, flight, freeze, fawn fatigue, flood symptomatology so that then they can be much more confident. Teachers being able to modify the way that they ask questions in class. So I typically recommend let's start with um, an open-ended question and then let's narrow that down. Giving enough processing time, and this is really awkward for teachers because we're so used to really fast-paced classrooms, right? Everything's going really, really quickly, but making sure that a teacher gives six to 10 seconds even after asking that question and allowing that child an opportunity to process the question, be able to initiate and formulate some sort of a response. If that doesn't work, we'll scaffold down a little bit to asking what's called a forced choice question. In our speech world, you know, closed kinds of questions where it's sort of a fill in the blank type of a question. So those those forced choice questions, instead of what are you going to have for dinner? Now it's, are you going to have a hamburger or are you going to have a hot dog? And then if that doesn't yield a response, give more time for processing. And then we're going to shift it to a yes or no, where we can sort of gesture and, and allow the child an opportunity to shake her head, yes or no. So do you want a hamburger is going to allow for hopefully a yes or no. Again, if that child is still so frozen, that still may not yield a response. And you almost essentially hold up two hands and see if there's a little bit of an eye gaze to shift to one or the other, just to see so that the child is having that opportunity to engage, interact. That's going to help change that environment where we're no longer supporting the complete avoidance of participation in the engagement, but also scaffolding it to where the child can be successful. They have that peak of anxiety. The anxiety drops down when they're successful. And then that's going to perpetuate a much more confident, comfortable speaking situation. So interesting because so often we find teachers do avoid to try to help reduce that anxiety. But that's so fascinating that instead you're not building that confidence. Now, that said, should they do that whole hierarchy each and every time? Or should they just if they notice that they're only going to do the eye gains the next time, only do the eye gaze? 
I usually suggest starting one above wherever you think the child is. So there is a speaking hierarchy. Most people who work with SM have their own speaking hierarchy. So I have my own hierarchy where the first most severe level is functional emotional developmental capacity one. I know that's a lot of a lot of words, but FEDC one, which is part of the DIR floor time model. And so that means we're looking at self-regulation and that child is mute. As we go up that ladder to FEDC2, that's looking at social engagement, shared attention, and that's looking at a child who's gesturing. Now, when we start at FEDC2, we're also looking at initiation and responding. Responding is always going to be easier for a child than initiation. So they may actually be at one level for initiation and a different level for responding. And so as you continue to move up that hierarchy, the next level is going to be making sounds. This is where our whispers come in too. So you may have kids that will make some animal sounds or they may kind of say, mm-hmm, as they're saying yes, or mm-mm, as they say no, or mm-mm, for I don't know. And so some kids kind of get stuck at FEDC3, which is purposeful communication. And then as we continue finally up to FEDC4, that is looking at fully verbal, being fully verbal. So for the teacher who gets to the prompt, if you will, for asking the question and and that eye gaze is about all we're at, then I probably would start with maybe more of the yes, no question slightly up above or possibly asking that forced choice where you're maybe hoping for at least a really structured answer, but it really helps to know where the child fits in that hierarchy so that you can better approach them in the classroom. All this same time, you're hopefully being able to have the child receive some one-on-one support outside of the classroom because that is truly where the progress happens, at least getting them verbal with one particular person in the school and then being able to carry that over to multiple people in the classroom. Wow. So fascinating. So that said, that's a good transition to what is the SLP's role? What's that? Great question. Yes, it's a great question. So I believe that SLP's skill and scope of practice is absolutely in supporting people's communication. That's really what the role is, right? So if you look at ASHA, we are able to work with a wide range of ideologies and people with psychiatric disorders is absolutely one of those ideologies. The other piece for thinking about why SLPs should be involved in working with kids with SM is that one of the diagnostic criteria specifies that SM interferes with social communication. And we are the experts in social communication. The other way that we can really help support kids with SM is as you're moving from that FEDC3 to FEDC4, there is a nice stepwise way of supporting using sounds. So we get to the the phoneme level and then segmenting phonemes and then blending phonemes, which is exactly what we do when we first start talking and when we're working with kids for articulation or apraxia of speech, for example. So for me, I think that our role really is in helping to provide alternative communication methods initially, but then also helping those children to just access their communication overall. That's what our our job is. And so by doing that, again, pulling, typically pulling them out one-on-one, starting that way and then building up, preferably with a team. It would be wonderful if it's a team approach. But ultimately, I think that SLP should absolutely be involved. So interesting, especially when you say the whole phoneme level, because you think 
they can speak, they speak at home and with people they're comfortable with. Why do we need to be working at the phoneme level if they already have them? Right, exactly. But if you think about it, you're almost retraining your brain, right? So that amygdala is perceiving these social situations as being dangerous. And so we're sort of, well, we are desensitizing the brain really in that biochemistry to feeling much more confident and looking at it instead of thinking about talking, which seems like a really big leap from not talking to talking in that particular setting. We're sort of taking that step backwards and starting from, okay, we can babble, we can make mouth noises, we can sort of play and enjoy, you know, just making sounds for for fun. And then that becomes much more meaningful, much more purposeful, much more intentional by starting to do phonemes and so on. And I play a lot of games. We do it very interactively. It's very child-led. I utilize a lot of swings or trampolines or crash pads and, and therapy balls and things like that so that it doesn't feel as overwhelming. And it's sort of counterbalancing so much of that stress that the child feels as they're thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to talk or, oh my gosh, I'm heading to that side of having to be verbal. Instead, it's blowing off that steam at the same time, helping to regulate that whole nervous system while accessing those phonemes and moving up that ladder. So interesting. Now, a lot of my listeners work tend to work with the older students. Is there a point in time where, I don't want to say it's not that it's saying it's too late, but it might be more challenging to break them of this. I don't want to say habit, but because they've been holding onto this anxiety for so many years and it has not been addressed maybe appropriately or at all. What would you say to an SLP who is brought a case like this and or a parent who's saying like, help, finally help me, someone help me? <laughs> sure. Well, I think that the literature tells us, the research tells us age seven is the magic age. And that means that if a child continues to persist in their mutism after age seven, we're really looking at potentially adding medication in combination with therapy. So Prior to age seven, there are a lot of kids that, that may start medication before age seven, but age seven really seems to be the magic age. For those people who may be in middle school and getting a child on their caseload at that time, because maybe it is interfering much more with their educational you know, success, I would say cautiously talk about maybe a medication referral to um, the medical doctor at that point, but it's definitely not too late. The really great thing about SM is that it's curable. I can't say that about most of the disorders that I work with, right? But we're able to say that we can cure the SM. The underlying anxiety will continue to persist, but the way that that anxiety is manifesting is through the mutism. And so we can absolutely help that symptom for the anxiety, regardless of the age, which is really exciting. That's amazing. That's a relief to hear because so often, I mean, I, I'm not the SLP that's working with them prior. So, right. maybe, so and so often us SLPs in school say their language is intact. It's not a language issue. It's not my case, but it's so eye opening to hear that we can help and be integral part of the uh, team approach. So. Absolutely. I think the bigger piece too is, yes, while their language skills may be on track, the research tells us anywhere from 85 to 95% of kids with SM have comorbid speech and language difficulties. So I think that's a pretty high rate of co-occurrence for us to absolutely take a, a 
much more deeper dive in looking at that assessment. And then also looking at the social pragmatics, really, what is the quality of their social skills? What does that look like? How robust are those social skills? Are the children initiating to get their needs met? Or are they passive responders as they're connecting and communicating and so on? So I think for our younger guys, those language samples are really, really helpful and those really great observations. And then for our older students, making sure that we're really truly evaluating and assessing the quality of that social interaction as well. What advice would you give someone, uh, this is what I'm thinking, if they're anxious in social situations and don't want to talk, how are you evaluating them? It's pretty amazing. I, I don't know if it's just my personality, if it's because I have you know, a room that looks like a really fun play space, even for my middle school and high school kids. But most of them are verbal with me enough to get some assessment done, depending on the the assessment. I can usually get really confidently reliable information from any receptive language tasks, right? The PPBT, looking at any receptive subtests where they're literally just pointing and so on. So we build a little bit of rapport. We go through that part. The expressive part can sometimes vary and sometimes I alternate how I get that information. So if I can modify it instead where they can write it out so that I know if it's a much older student or type it out, text it to me, it's not exactly you know valid, but at least it gives me some insight into that information. I do a lot of videotaping, having parents send me videotapes of you know home conversations and social interactions that they may have. Nowadays, with everyone with a cell phone, it's a lot easier than it was back in 2006, where we still had camcorders and Blackberries that didn't take very good videos or or quality recordings. But we've come a long way since then. So absolutely using a wide range of all of those things um, to just do your best is really all you can do. Love it. Can you give an example of maybe a goal you might write for a student with SM? Absolutely. So thinking about that hierarchy, if you look at a child and you see that they are at FEDC2, which is that gestural communication in the classroom, and maybe that is for their responding, but initiation, they're still at FEDC1, you're going to write the goal that Sally will be able to reply verbally to a forced choice question, you know, with 85% accuracy or something along those lines, whatever you're criteria is going to be. So really, you're just looking at that structure. And then I do have a data collection sheet. And I really just look at kind of where the child is. And then the goal is literally that next step on the on the sheet. So if the child is completely frozen, the first step is to participate in some sensory motor activities, just to be physical, right? Just to be able to make those selections and those choices, because they may not be able to do that with their motor movements if they're frozen, if their whole body is frozen. So that's going to be the first goal. Once you've achieved that, then the next goal is going to be that they're going to be able to start to respond gesturally to you know verbal questions and so on. And so literally just go step by step as you create those goals. So interesting. I never would have thought of it like 
so clearly that it, how much it is in our wheelhouse. So <laughs> it's, it's, no, seriously, it, it really makes sense, right? We are the experts in helping people to communicate. And so just because a child's capable of communicating in one setting and struggles in another, why wouldn't we as SLPs continue to be involved in that? It doesn't matter. I think the biggest argument usually comes from the fact that the underlying cause is the anxiety. And absolutely, it's still the anxiety. So by all means, have those mental health treating professionals involved with the child as well. But I will be honest with you, most psychologists have no idea how to support a child through a speaking hierarchy or helping them to communicate because that's not their their area of expertise. So that's why obviously it makes the most sense to have a multidisciplinary approach where you have multiple people. I'm unique in the sense that I have my doctoral work is in mental health. So I have the mental health side and I have the speech and language side, but that's obviously not the case for most of us. As an SLP though, we are absolutely, it doesn't matter what that underlying cause is. We work with people with all different neurological differences, right? Whether it's autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, we're still supporting that child's communication. So I don't know why it becomes such a dynamic conversation. It's pretty emotional sometimes. It gets pretty passionate for people to say that we absolutely should not be or we absolutely should be involved. I think that it just makes the most sense that we're involved because it does impact communication so greatly. So, so true. Where can everyone listening that wants to learn more about selective mutism, what are some good resources and trainings and PDs for them that they should check out? Sure. So I do have a website. It's just my first and last name, jolenefernal.com. And then I also have a separate website specific for DIR, selectivemutism.com. Facebook, both the group DIR selectivemutism.com uh, or selective mutism, I guess, is my Facebook group. And then Dr. Joe SLP is on Instagram so that I post a lot of information in those places. The selective mutism organization, the National Selective Mutism Organization is selectivemutism.org. I will say, though, that they are mostly made up of psychologists because of the underlying anxiety side of things. So it may not be as valuable, but some of the information certainly for relating to the anxiety and, and underlying causes, accommodations in the classroom and so on can be really, really great resources. I will definitely be checking that out. Now, we'll be including all those things in the show notes. So Everyone, thank you so much, Jolene. And you mentioned everyone where they can find you, but any last bit of advice that you think everyone should hear regarding SM? I think the biggest thing is to have hope because for so many of these kids, they've been through experiences where it hasn't been successful and people haven't known really how to just break it down into smaller bits and steps. But we are experts in scaffolding that breakdown of how to communicate. And so use those skills and that knowledge that we have as SLPs and jump on in. I will tell you the first child that you work with that you support and overcomes the SM you are hooked. They are going to be the, the new passion that you want to continue to work with. I love it. And you can see that passion in your face, your eyes, you're glowing as you say it. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with all of us. I know everyone is getting that jolt of inspiration they need. They're probably thinking of a student that they are so eager to jump in and have such an amazing impact with and change their life for the better. So thank you so, so much. And I always end my episodes with a joke because humor is fun. It also builds a lot of rapport. So what do you call a fossil that doesn't ever want to work? I don't know. What do you call a fossil? Lazy bones. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I'm ching. Until yes. next week, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Stay out of trouble. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. It means the world to me that you're tuning in each and every week and getting the jolt of inspiration you need. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at my website, speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss any future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys.